Last week we began our study of the book of Romans by briefly looking at the life of the Apostle Paul. This week we want to look briefly at an overview of the book of Romans itself and the occasion for Paul's writing of it, the purpose of the book, its theme, its audience, etc. All of these matters are crucial in understanding the flow and contents of the book. Otherwise, we would just be meandering our way through its chapters randomly attempting to understand Paul's argument in the epistle. Romans is the longest and most theologically important letter that Paul ever wrote. And out of this most significant letter of Paul has come the most significant impact upon the church of Jesus Christ and its letters across the centuries, excuse me, across the leaders of the centuries. Augustine, who has probably had more influence on the church worldwide than any theologian in the history of the church, was significantly indebted to the book of Romans. Indeed, he was converted by reading a portion of the book of Romans after living a very sinful life of debauchery, when he was 32 years old, he was in his garden and a most amazing thing happened. In Augustine's own words, suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. I interpreted it solely as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find. So I hurried back to the place where I had put down the book of the Apostle when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. Romans 13, 13 and 14. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Martin Luther's understanding of sin, law and gospel, faith and salvation, and the righteousness of God was informed by his exegesis of the book of Romans. Luther called Romans really, quote, the chief part of the New Testament, and truly the purest gospel, end quote. John Calvin's commentary on the book of Romans, written in the 1500s, is still being read 
by scholars and pastors for its lucidity and brevity. Calvin was brilliantly shaped by the insights he gained from his diligently studied response to Romans. John Wesley's conversion was triggered by hearing Luther's preface to the book of Romans. Can you imagine that? A man was converted to Christ by reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans. Luther said in his preface to the book of Romans, I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy He justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Brothers and sisters, many more unknown and now non-famous but nonetheless precious believers could attest to the impact of the book of Romans has had in their lives. No doubt many of you. But what about some of the details of this great book? What makes it so special? And what are some of the things that we need to know as we embark upon our study of this marvelous book? What are some of the things that we need to know that will help us as we seek to understand it in a greater way? Well, first of all, no one has ever seriously doubted that the Apostle Paul was its author. As they have questioned some of the other books of the New Testament, which also list him as their author. You might be interested to know that Paul, as did many in the ancient world, had an amanuensis. You say, what's that? An amanuensis was like a secretary or an editor or a scribe who copied down what the author wanted him to write. Paul's amanuensis in the book of Romans was named Tertius. And we know this from Romans 16.22. You might turn there. Romans 16.22 for a moment. I'm turning in my English standard version. Romans 16.22. Romans 16.22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, 
greet you in the Lord. Now that's not heresy. That's not blasphemy. That's just a scribe. And that's in our Bible. That's not saying that Paul wasn't the author. That's simply to say that Paul dictated as the author of the book to someone, Tertius, who we know next to nothing about, so that this secretary or amanuensis could write down with his hand the actual words on to the page. And Paul, of course, was very fastidious about what was to be ultimately written, but Tertius was the actual scribe who penned the words. Now, there might be those scholars who would say Tertius or someone else had the complete freedom to write what they wanted to write, but that's not true. Paul, of course, was the ultimate author, and these are his words, and whatever was written was written like he wanted them to be written. Tertius was simply the one who wrote physically the words down on the page, but Paul was the author. Last week I mentioned that Romans was penned around A.D. 54. However, the dates of the chronology of Paul's life are notoriously difficult to really pin down. And a date for the writing of Romans could really anywhere be from A.D. 54 to 58, with any comfort level in between those dates. And as I said last time, without getting into too much detail, was written from the city of Corinth. We know that because of chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea. And that gives us a little bit of insight because Sincrea was a place that was very near that place in Corinth, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. There was very much in the chronology of the book of Romans and in the book of Acts a very setting that would make it very easy to see that Paul was in Corinth at the time that the book of Romans was penned. Very, very detailed idea that the book of Romans was penned from Corinth itself. Now, a question might be asked here, what was Paul's purpose in writing to the Romans? And that would be an appropriate question because if you didn't really know this already, you're going to find out as we go through, especially nearing the end of our study, Paul didn't found the church at Rome. You would think that, since Paul was the founder of most of the churches that he wrote to, that he would have been the founder of the church at Rome, but he wasn't. And by the way, neither was Peter. Contrary to Roman Catholic theology and tradition, Peter was not the founder of the church at Rome. I believe that the founding of the church at Rome was a sovereign work of God, which was occurring... Get this, very important, which was occurring at Pentecost. The founding of the church at Rome occurred at Pentecost. It really didn't occur on the basis of an apostle. 
A lot of these churches did occur on the basis of an apostolic founding, but not Rome. It occurred on the basis of the founding being at the very origin of the Pentecostal origins of the founding of the church itself in Acts 2. And if you want to see this, look in your Bibles to the book of Acts and I'll show you. In Acts chapter 2, and this is very, very important. You can see this by the very attestation of Scripture itself. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And that's a clue. Every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That's another clue, by the way, that the Holy Spirit was taking the very message of truth and communicating it in the language in which everyone could understand their own language. Which gives insight, by the way, into the idea of tongues. That means a known language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, they're speaking, but we can understand them in our own language. Glossolalia means languages. And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from where? Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they are all filled with new wine. Everybody was talking, and the people in their own languages were hearing from these Galileans the preaching of the Word of God. The gospel was being disseminated. And the people were hearing these Galileans talking, and people were supposing folks to be drunk, and yet they were hearing the Word of God, the Gospel was going forth, and according to verse 10, Romans were hearing the Word of Truth in their language, and guess what? When the Romans were hearing the Gospel, they were hearing this Word, and guess where they were going ultimately? Back to Rome. And they were going back to Rome, and guess what was started back in Rome? The church. And when the church was started, there was a fellowship of believers who began to fellowship with one another, and therefore the church at Rome began. There was no apostolic starting of the church. The church began at Rome not by Paul and not by Peter. 
And additionally, because of the nature of this gathering of both Gentile believers and Jewish believers, as we'll see in the study of Romans itself, Paul most definitely needs to instruct them as to how to behave toward one another in the body of Christ. And we'll see that especially in Romans 9, 10, and 11, theologically speaking, and then ethnically speaking in Romans 14 and 15. And so, the overall purpose of the book of Romans is to instruct these believers in the Christian faith. Now, admittedly, this is a very general statement as to the purpose of the book, and we'll go on. As to the specific purpose, this is a bit harder to determine. Many different theories have been espoused as to why Paul himself wanted to both write them and to visit them. And as to why he wanted to visit them, look at Romans 15 for that answer. Romans 15. Romans 15. You say, why did Paul want to specifically visit them? Why did he he want to come to them? Well, maybe verse... 19 might help help us a little bit. We talked a little bit in Acts 2 about signs and wonders, specifically tongues. It says in Romans 15, verse 19, By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, Paul was doing his works so that, he says, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He was an apostle. Just like the twelve. And he was doing his ministry just like they were. Although he was called as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, I was doing my ministry also by the power of signs and wonders. By the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So from Jerusalem through the environs all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. You say, where is Illyricum? By the way, Illyricum today encompasses Albania and parts of Yugoslavia. Isn't that interesting? And he says, I want to go even beyond there all the way to Spain. So you really have three areas that Paul wants to go to. Jerusalem, Rome, and ultimately far west to Spain. He says, verse 20, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul wants to trust God to preach the Word of God, to evangelize the lost far above where anyone has ever seen Christ be named. He says in verse 22, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, which implies, of course, that he hasn't been able to go, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Which implies, of course, that he doesn't really want to stay in Rome for long. I want to go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he doesn't really have the intention to stay in Rome for long. 
At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. That means material aid. The church in Jerusalem is very poor. They need financial help. They need material help. He says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So that's his goal. I want to give to the saints in Jerusalem. I want to meet their spiritual and material needs. And then I want to come to you, but I don't want to come for a long period of time. It's really just a stopping off point. I want to instruct you in matters of the faith including this Jew and Gentile problem, and then I want to go off to Spain where I can preach the gospel. He wants to go to Spain, but he wants to stop off in Rome before doing so, and he wants to minister to them after he helps the Jerusalem church with their poverty issues. You see, Paul is all about the evangelization of the lost, and he wants to go westward to Spain. So since there is a church which has been established in Rome, and not wanting to build on another man's foundation, he wants to greet them and then move westward to places where the gospel has not penetrated. Now someone's going to immediately say, wait a minute. If Paul is not the founder of the church at Rome, then how can he greet all of these people in Romans 16? Because if you look at chapter 16, he says, now greet so-and-so and so-and-so and tell so-and-so I said hi. And by the way, say hello to so-and-so. In fact, 25 individuals by name. Two families. One house church plus other brothers and other saints. So if he's never been there, how can he say hello to everybody as though he knows everybody so intimately? That's a good question. But a good answer to that question is the fact that we all must remember that there were some folks in Jerusalem during the Acts 2 Pentecost event. Right? And... Look in verse 3 of chapter 16. Greet Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. He definitely knows who they are, right? He knows very much who they are. They are fellow workers. He knows them in their previous travels. And we also know from history that Jews in Rome were expelled from the city and many of them were thrust out into areas where they would have come into contact with Paul, no doubt. So it isn't actually surprising at all that in the sovereign plan of God, he would have been placed into their path and they into Paul's path and they would have been discipled, returned to Rome And he writes from Corinth and he says, Greet all of these whom I know and love, even though I haven't been there, they've been with me. It's not that tough at all. Not that tough at all. He loves them. And he's been with them. And some of them he may have been with for years. It's not that tough to see that at all. 
fact, we'll talk a little bit about that later. Because several of these Jews, no doubt, had been expelled. We'll talk about that. What about the theme of the book of Romans? We could talk about that for a whole hour, but we won't. At least not this morning. Suffice it to say that the theme, in my judgment, you, want, you might want to write this down because we're going to come back to this time and time again, is this. The theme, in my judgment, of the book of Romans is the gospel of the sovereign grace of God's glory in Christ. Is that a mouthful? The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel of the sovereign grace of God's glory in Christ. That may be able to capture everything about this wonderful letter. I think it is even more important this morning than going through a big outline of the book because we're going to do that in due course through our exposition of the book itself. How would I break that thematic definition down for us? Well, first of all, the gospel. Let's talk about the gospel. Everything about this letter of Paul is about the gospel. Even the first 17 verses of Romans 1 is about the gospel. This is really, this whole epistle is a gospel tract. Did you realize that? Did you know that this book of Romans is really nothing more than a gospel tract? That's what it was meant to be. you imagine that this letter, apart from, taken out of our Bibles, was probably something that was written and stapled together and passed out to people like a gospel tract? Try that on for size. Pass that out to people and say, here's a gospel tract for you to read. That's what they did in the first century. They handed it to people and say, here's a gospel tract. Read that. And that's really what the first 17 verses are. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be His saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
But I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You realize that's the introduction to the book? That's really the introduction to the book of Romans. That's really the gospel in miniature. That's the introduction to the track. That's everything that he wants to introduce in the first 17 verses. You realize that Paul intended for the book of Romans to be a gospel tract for these brothers and sisters. That's really why the theme of this book has to include something of the idea of the gospel. But it must also include, because of its theological richness, the idea of the sovereignty of grace. And that is why we say the gospel of the sovereign grace of God. You see, you can't understand the sovereign grace of God until you understand the righteous judgment of God. And that's why we see in the first couple of chapters of Romans, that is from chapter 1 verse 18 and chapter until chapter 3 verse 20, the righteous indignation of God against sin. For instance... Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Look at verse 4. By no means, he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. What is he doing? What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. After talking first of all about God creating the world in chapter 1 verse 18 and then talking in chapter 2 about God's judgment and the law... He talks in chapter 3 about the Jew and his advantage because he's received the law. And in all of this, in chapters 1, verse 18, and chapter 2, and chapter 3, he's talking about the irrefutable proof that God is not unrighteous in judging the world because of their sinfulness, whether it is with the Jew who has the law or the Gentile without the law. That God is absolutely righteous in condemning the world Because they have sinned, whether they have the law or the Gentiles who do not have the law, God is absolutely righteous in His sovereign power to condemn the world because they have sinned against God. Absolutely righteous. That's His point. God shows Himself righteous... And man shows himself unrighteous because he has sinned against this righteous God and violated God's law. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. The end of verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they had become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In case someone would say, well, isn't there just one person out there? Is everyone guilty before God? Is the Gentile who doesn't have the law? That doesn't seem fair. Isn't there maybe one Jew out there who has the law? No one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. None. Absolutely none. That's what... God says, and in chapter 3, verse 21, after sharing with us the absolutely bad news, verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And I love the good news, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Well, if every single person in the world is condemned through the law, then God has provided a way. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's what Luther was talking about. It was as though I was reborn and I saw a gateway into heaven. And it was the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And that is Sovereign grace. And that's why the theme is the gospel of the sovereign grace of God. That is the gospel, the good news of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ having given us the forgiveness of sin. Oh, that's good news. And he gives us an illustration of that that reaches all the way into the Old Testament. And he tells us it could even be retroactively experienced by someone like Abraham. Look at chapter 4. He says... What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Chapter 4, verse 1. Our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If it's something that you worked for, it's something that is due you. But if it's something that you do in believing, it is something that is given to you as a gift. And Abraham believed. In verse 9, it says, We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And he says in verse 12, And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Oh, my. He says, if you are of Abraham, since he was a believer, and if you believe, then you are of Abraham. He's a believer, and if you believe like he believed, then it is of your faith, because it was of his faith. It isn't an issue of circumcision. It is an if issue of faith. It is an issue of believing. It is an issue of works. And I love what he says in verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's the glory of God in Christ. And that's why chapter 6 says that you don't have to, you don't have to work to be saved. And in chapter 6, you're united with Him. Chapter 6, verse 5, in a death like His, and you'll be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And you don't have to let sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, verse 12, to obey its passions. And you don't have to present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Chapter 7. This is that, that fight. And there will be a fight. Because even though sin does not now reign, sin remains. Don't miss it. Sin does not now reign, but sin remains. 
And he says in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You say, well, that sounds like he's still battling as though he's a pre-Christian man. But don't forget verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. He's thanking God. He's thanking God for that deliverance. And one day it will be a total and complete reality. And then chapter 8, and that's why I say that the theme is the glory, the, the gospel of the sovereign grace of God's glory in Christ. Because there's going to be a glorification. A complete and total glorification. Because chapter 8 talks about an ultimate glorification. He says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if, in Christ, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your, model, your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He goes on to talk about the fact that there will be a future glory. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation, verse 22, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until till now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves also who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What shall we say to these things? Verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And He will give us those things. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, super conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our glorification. That's our, our being glorified with Christ. And that's what's going to happen. We know that we're going to be with Christ forever. And then I believe that Romans will take its ethical dimension. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, the ethical implications start with a theological side to it. It starts with the relationship with Jews and Gentiles. This is a hotly debated topic and we're going to jump right into the middle of it when we get there. This is going to be the Jew and Gentile of the future, even though Paul talks about it in the present. This is, this is what's going to happen in the future, he says, but it's Jew and Gentile nonetheless. This is the theological and ethical implications. And we're going to talk about Romans 9, 10, and 11. We're going to talk about sovereignty. 
verses 1 to 23 of chapter 9, and there's a lot of it there, folks, and we're not going to skirt one single issue about it. Romans 12, we'll study the great passage on being a living sacrifice, as well as the section on spiritual giftedness, as well as how to respond to someone who perpetrates evil against you. Romans 13, we'll study about the marvelous instruction of Paul regarding the Christian's responsibility to the government. We'll look at the famous text which converted Augustine about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh. Romans 14 and 15, we're going to deal with the unity of strong and weak Christians and how they should interact with one another. This is a most important aspect of the study of our unity with each other. It was also a very important study of Paul's instruction to the Roman church because apparently in about A.D. 49, according to Suetonius, a historian who wrote on Claudius' life, Claudius the emperor, he expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. It is generally agreed that Crestus is a, cor- a corruption of the Greek Christos, meaning Christ, the word Messiah. And that Suetonius' remark refers to violent debates within the Jewish synagogues in Rome over the claims about Jesus being the Christ. And Acts 18.2 seems to confirm this. And the point is that by the time Paul writes in the mid-50s, the Jews had returned to Rome. And when they got there, they found out that it was a Gentile-dominated church. So if you have a Gentile-dominated church... And the Romans, Rome and the Jews who were expelled from Rome came back. Guess what you have? Gentile-dominated church. The Jews come back, and there's conflict. So Gentile believers, Jewish believers, and now conflict. And Paul comes, and he has to write Romans 14 and 15 to tell them about how not to have conflict between each other. And I believe that there are conflicts that are dealt with in both Romans 9, 10, and 11 and Romans 14 and 15. Romans 9, 10, and 11 theologically, Romans 14 and 15 ethically. We're going to talk about that. There were conflicts about Jewish food laws, Sabbath issues, other issues which Paul addresses in Romans 14 and 15. And we're going to talk about that. And then Romans 16, there's a closing. There's a warm closing. But there's also some issues of warning about heretics, false teachers. We'll talk about that. Oh, I can't wait to get into this. In fact, I cheated. I studied most of the book already. This is, this is fabulous stuff. I can't believe this was just a gospel track. I was looking at some of the men who have studied this through the ages. You realize that when Martin Lloyd-Jones set off to study the book of Romans, he never finished. He never finished because of some cancer that he had to retire from Westminster Chapel. Looked at some of my contemporaries. Some of them have begun a study of the book of Romans and some of them are into it with 8, 10, 12-year studies. I'm not going to do that, I hope. I hope to study this relevantly and briefly as I can, but there's so much here Maybe the Lord will give us the kind of study that will be fruitful and yet very, very helpful and poignant as we try to live our own Christian lives. And I pray that God will give us the kind of study as we begin, hopefully next Lord's Day, with Romans 1.1. Let's bow our heads in prayer.
Father, as we commence this study of this great book, as we look at this very, very brief overview, these things that occupy our minds, and as our care groups come together this evening for a reading of the book of Romans as they prepare their own hearts for this great study. I pray that this will be a life-changing event for our church. Lord, I ask that You would give us in our study humble minds, ready hearts, quick spirits to apply the things that we are learning. I pray that we will not have theological fatheads. I pray that we would have soft and tender hearts as we apply the things that we are learning. Lord, I beseech You to give us the the kind of heart that Paul has. That, That this is the kind of tract, gospel tract, that speaks first and foremost of the gospel. That this is... This is something that people need to read to advance the gospel. I pray that we would not sit, but that this would take us to action. Theology with legs. That we would learn to do. And I pray that this would be something that would motivate us to evangelize. I pray that You would go before us to motivate us to speak to our neighbors, to invite those around us to share in this study. I pray that You would allow us to bring other men and women to this fellowship so that they could join with us so that others may hear the Gospel. And I pray that as we embark upon Romans 1.1, that others may hear the truth and live. And that this church would be a beacon for truth. And I pray that others, like Augustine and Luther and Wesley and Calvin and untold multitudes would hear the truth and live. Lord, may it be so. And may we be humble servants bringing the message to those who need Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.